Welcome to Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast with your host, Steve Shulwolf. Thanks, Phil. This is Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. I'm your host, Steve Showolf, and this is episode three. This episode, we're going to talk a little bit about humor and comedy. And I guess at first blush, that doesn't seem to impact what a mediator does, but I'll present Exhibit A. To me, it's one of the more funny movies in the last 20 years to come out, but Wedding Crashers involves two mediators. So Owen uh, Wilson and Vince Vaughn, the first scene of that movie is they're mediating a uh, divorce case. Obviously, the movie really doesn't center on mediation, but it demonstrates that maybe there is some type of role for humor in mediation. But comedy and humor has a difficulty for the law to decide what's appropriate, what's not. It winds up being contextual. It's norm-based. Legally, it's difficult to prescribe what is appropriate and what's not. And so I wanted to talk to somebody who I thought had an understanding of both uh, litigating and frankly, of just the legal impacts in the workplace setting, but who also knows a little bit about comedy. So our guest here for uh, this episode is Karen Carson. Karen is the Senior Managing Counsel at Tenet Healthcare. Um, She has assessed, I think, litigated and supervised employment matters. She's taught at SMU's uh, Dispute Resolution uh, program. And like myself, she's licensed in two states. She's in uh, Texas uh, and New Mexico. I ran across her. I moved from Illinois, as some of you know. And the first Texas bar journal that I got had in it the winning article for a short story competition. And in that article, the author, Miss Carson, compared preparing to argue an important motion in front of a judge with standing up in front of folks and doing stand-up comedy. And that's something that I don't think was all that difficult for her to imagine since that's something that she does herself. So I guess she can explain this better than I. Welcome to the podcast, Karen. Thanks, Steve. Great to be here. Well, we appreciate you coming here. Before we talk, I'd like to play a, a quick little clip from if your day job is being a lawyer, your night job is being a comedian, or uh, it's a little bit more than a hobby because just taking a quick Google search, uh, you've uh, you know been able to be uh, pretty successful at, uh, at this and you're very, very funny. So let's, uh, you want to set up uh, the, the, this clip or should we just uh, play it? Wait, Bill is waving his arms madly Looks like he's ready to play the clip. So, Karen, let's hear the clip first, and then you could tell us a little bit more about your comedic style afterwards. Let her rip, Phil. What I get told the most is, Karen, you look like the naive first wife on every Lifetime Channel original movie. Right? You know that first wife. She never sees it coming. (laughs) Whatever it is. Even when the movie's called His Other Family, like, she doesn't get it. Well, very funny. And what I would say, self-deprecating stuff. Right, Karen? I'll I'll tell you, one of the things many comics do, especially with an audience they're not familiar with, is they get on stage. You know the audience is sizing you up, often kind of like the way a jury might size up a, a lawyer when he or she is making their opening statement. And one of the kind of easy ways to kind of get people used to you and the way you talk and the way you are is to make jokes about the way you look. You know, I mean, if you're really tall, you make tall jokes. If, um, you know, you're the skinniest person on the planet, you can make jokes about that. But, you know, I'm, and I know nobody can see me on this podcast. I'm just a middle-aged white lady. And, you know, what I, what I tend to do is, is I make a lot of jokes about myself. And Karen and I were talking about this a little bit before uh, we, we started. The, the ironic thing of this is that we're here because I sent her an unsolicited LinkedIn message. That led to me driving an hour and a half up from Austin, uh, Karen coming down uh, about the same distance uh, from, from Dallas. And we met at a Holiday 
in. And uh, I told her that I splurged the extra $30 because it would have been cheaper had I gotten a room instead of a conference room, but uh, I didn't think I could push that the naive uh, theme, uh, you know, too far, Karen. But I think your 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 comedic persona probably, you know, would have naively walked. Into I would that have walked room. right into that room. Yeah. <laughs> I would have probably like brought my own ice bucket. I mean, I would have been like, yeah, let's do this. But uh, conference room, much appreciated. And my husband does know exactly where I am right now, okay. so <laughs> all precautions the, necessarily. The point of the article, I think, at least from my take on it, from the readers perspective was that stand-up and lawyering might not be as different as maybe people listening to this think. So in what ways are they similar? (laughs) Uh, You know, I think there's many. One of the first things you learn when you start doing stand-up comedy is to, we call it respecting the light or, or, you know, minding the light. Because if you've ever been to, you know, even a professional comedy show or an open mic, the comics are given a particular amount of time. Maybe it's three minutes, maybe it's five minutes, maybe it's 12 or even more. But the way that you know that you're coming to the end of your time is that there's somebody in the back of the room that flashes either a flashlight at you or an iPhone light, and it's it's the warning. And when I started doing stand-up comedy and got used to that, it really gave me a flashback to appellate arguments where in, in many appellate courts, you have the green light when you're doing fine and you have plenty of time, the yellow light when you're running out of time, and the red light, which is like the light of doom, the light of death. You know, as a get off the podium. I mean, it's very similar in comedy. If you ever see a light that's like flashing and blinking at you, you need to stop mid-sentence and just get off the stage because you're irritating somebody who's either running the show or running the mic. So, you know, that was sort of one of the very first things that jumped jumped at me was that, you know, you need to make points under time pressure and, you know, whatever your objective is, is, is when you're on stage or when you're at the podium or in front of a jury, they're expecting things you need to deliver them. So that was one of the first things. But Steve, I, I, I'm sure there's more to it. I mean, you and I were talking a little bit earlier about, you know, you have to figure out how to read the room. You know, when I do different types of shows, I often think of who's the audience going to be. And there are some rooms that I work in, which are clean, they call them clean rooms, which is, you know, don't be talking a lot of sex and drugs and bodily function. It's not, it's not what the room wants. And then there are other places, especially when you're doing a late night show that absolutely anything goes. And even from city to city, I've found that I sometimes have to sort of grit up my comedy more in, say, Albuquerque, New Mexico, than at a club in North Dallas. It's just they're different audiences. And I think lawyers have to consider that. And it's not just in the courtroom. It may well be in, you know, a, a mediation where you have to consider your audience. I think that's true. Uh, a couple of things. There. I, I've argued appellate work as well. And I'm always amazed. I think you have to prepare to scrupulously adhere to, you know, the timing rules. Now, the the one difference for me there is some judges, I think, cut you more slack if they interrupt you more. Whether they will, you know, and some judges will interrupt you more and still make, you know, shut you down uh, and knowing whether they're going to give you maybe an extra 30 seconds or 60 seconds, which of course to a lawyer is, uh, you know, an eternity, is reading the room. I think I told you being an anal lawyer to prepare a little bit for this podcast, I tried to read up a little bit on some legal theory on uh, the regulation of uh, comedy. I think you mentioned, you know, different rooms want different things. And I think it's interesting. I think we were in, from what I can tell, I don't attempt to dabble in it in the way that you do, but it does seem like we've entered into an era now where almost comedians are self-policing. Um, you see some comedians calling out other comedians in terms of what's appropriate. Even some people who I think have a reputation of being clean comics, like uh, Jerry Seinfeld doesn't swear, but he, I think I've seen recently kind of express some concern that, you know, the the environment right now is is, is not necessarily receptive for pushing the envelope. And uh, have, how's that impacted, uh, you know, your routines or your preparation? Mm, interesting. Um, 
I mean, I consider myself, I call myself mostly clean, <laughs> um, mainly because, you know, my jokes come from my own life and my own experience. And I don't, I don't think, think sort of a lot of profanity and, and, and the kind of jokes that are considered blue. And so I think most comics would agree with me is, is don't try to be someone you're not. I mean, many of us have sort of onstage personas, but they're just exaggerations of really who we are. And so I think you have to be true to yourself, but there, there's a premise in comedy, which I often remind myself on is it's always better to punch up than punch down. Like I'm not going to make jokes. And this is just my choice about homeless people, about disabled people. You know, I don't think it's funny. And I think that that's just punching down. Whereas I make a lot of jokes about myself and I'll, I'll occasionally, you know, punch up or I'm at least punching laterally. <laughs> um, so I think I, I'm familiar with, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, who, like you say, um, doesn't use a lot of swear words in his comedy. He has questioned the sort of policing that's going on now in comedy where things that used to be okay to joke about, you know, that bordered on racism, that bordered on misogyny, that, you know, bordered on off-color subjects. There, there definitely is, I think, in comedy. And, I, and you know, in, in all fairness, I don't do this professionally, as you talked about. It's not my day job. But even, you know, where I'm doing comedy nights and weekends, there, there is you know, a movement, um, sort of collectively to like make your comedy more acceptable to more people. And some comics resist that. And it often reminds me, we talked about this a little before is in the workplace. And, and as you mentioned, I'm mostly an employment lawyer is people want to be themselves at work. They want to tell the jokes they want to work. I mean, I mean the jokes they want to make at work and then, you find that not everyone shares your sense of humor and you can get into trouble at work if, if you're not reading the room, so to speak. Well, and, and I think going back a little bit to what I said at, at the beginning, it, it's very contextual. So what I, I would think, whether it's your type of humor or not, what's acceptable or should be acceptable in a room in which there's a bunch of paying adults to see a comedian is at a different level than it would be at the workplace is at a different level if your workplace is as a lawyer in front of a judge. And one of the things that I at least believe as, as a mediator is that I think there's a little bit more leeway to attempt to use humor in a mediation context than there is in a litigation context. And that's one of the things that mediators tell the participants on the onset of a mediation is this is less formal than a courtroom. So if you forget to tell me a key argument, but it comes to your head, you know, five minutes later, unlike a judge, I'm not going to tell you too late. So we're less formal. And with that, as a mediator, I don't have the power of the state vested in me. So I'm not going to be the individual who is going to render a final verdict on on your case. So while I'd like to be respected, I don't think I need to be put up on this pedestal in the same way that lawyers and litigants need to pay respect to uh, the people who are involved in uh, in our judicial system. So I think context, you know, matters. I think we both talked about the fact that, uh, not surprisingly, we. How quickly do you binge watch a full season of uh, of the marvelous Mrs. Maze? <laughs> yeah, um, I think there are two seasons out. I may know that the next one drops in early December. Um, you know, it's it, I think it's a great it's a great look at stand up comedy, and in particular, great look at stand up comedy if you're a woman. It's it, it's a great series. There's many technical things about it that I'm like, oh, they got that exactly right. So I commend it to everyone's viewing. It's interesting to hear that, you know, they got it right. My wife and I are the couple that everybody hates. I'm the lawyer. She's a doctor. Mm -hmm. um, so she hates all medical shows mm -hmm. on TV. I'm like, oh, and she's like, oh, she just walks out of the room. Actually, she's from Memphis and not to tear a show down because I share your uh, your enthusiasm for uh, Mrs. Maisel. But we watched, I think it's called Bluff City. It, it, she's from Memphis. It's this legal show. I couldn't get through 20 minutes of it on the <laughs> yeah, legal end. And, right. and we were only really 
watching yeah. it because she's from Memphis, but we just couldn't do it. So, I mean, it's interesting to hear you, you know, think that at, in terms of, you know, being a, a comic that, you know, dealing with some of the issues that she deals with sounds like at least, you know, some of them resonate with you. I think the show sometimes went off on some tangents, like when her mother went to Paris and stuff like that. I was like, bring it back to New York. I want more comedy. I'll give you an example that I've, I have literally had the same thing happen to me that I think it was in the second season when Mrs. Maisel Midge is starting to get better and better. And is her manager's getting her booked on shows, by the way, I have no manager. I, I am a one woman show. So, you know, you get yourself on a show and they're like, okay, you're going to go up second and you're ready. Sorry, I just clapped on a podcast to be, but you know, you're ready to go. You know, you got lipstick on, you're, you're, you're on fire. And then they're like, oh, well, you're, you're going to get bumped, but, but just, it'll just be a little bit, you know? And so, and they put on one male comic after the next, after the next, none of whom, I think this is part of the storyline. It's particularly funny, a lot of hack jokes. And as a woman, and you just have to sit there and just, you know, I mean, especially when you're new in comedy, you don't want to be the uh, high maintenance, and God forbid you're the high maintenance woman, you know, because it'll slow down your progress for sure if people see you that way. But I just remember watching that and I'm like, yeah, I've been there. <laughs> so it's, it's great. But I, I will say sort of, and it's not really a critique, it's just it's not my experience, is that some of the best work that Midge does on stage is completely spontaneous. And they give the impression that, you know, she could do five or eight minutes just completely spontaneous. And I, I don't find that realistic, but I will say that some of like my best tags, uh, which are, uh, for, for those of you not in comedy, it's, you know, jokes essentially consist of, of a setup and a punchline. And then a tag is like an additional punchline and you get another laugh and another laugh and another laugh by adding tags on. And some of the best tags I've come up with have, have been just random stuff that came to my brain and flew out of my mouth. Um, I don't know. Well, and that's the dangerous thing about comedy, right? Because we talk about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And that split second where something's coming out of your mouth, have you ever said something that you were like, mm, I'm not, I'm not, e either because it was off color or because it wasn't funny, but it's very difficult to make that decision. Although mm -hmm. lawyers have to make that decision yeah. as well. I've said things that just weren't funny. Maybe they weren't off color or maybe I said something that had no relevance to anybody in the room. And I'm trying to think if I can give an example. I'm not sure I can, but you know, I'm in my mid forties and I may, you know, remind me of something from like the facts of life sitcom. You may know Trudy, what it is, yes, Steve, I mean, right, yeah. but no one who was born in the last 30 years is going to know what that is, you know, and so some of those. But once once I did say something that I just really regretted, I had followed a comedian in Dallas, and this was just an open mic, but he's Indian, uh, from India. And he, one of his things is to be like, you know, this is the, the Brown portion of the show. And he does that. And I followed him and I think I got on stage and, and I'm, and I'm clearly not Brown. And so I made reference to that. And I said something like, sorry to disappoint you, something like not the Brown part of the show anymore. And it's like, it came off stupid and it was stupid. And I regretted it. And Fortunately for this, Mike, it was only a three, you only had three minutes. So I just then bombed for three minutes and got off the stage. And, but it was a good lesson. It's like, you know, Arun, that's his name. Arun can get up and talk about being brown, but it doesn't work with me. And it, it shouldn't. So in preparing for this, I think, like I said, I, I read some law review articles. I actually uh, listened to uh, some masterclass sessions from Steve Martin. So one of the things that he said, and I, when I heard it, I thought of your article and in general about how to practice law was that what you really want to be able to do is prepare. It's a lot of, you know, hard work, but that the performance should look like you're riffing. So I don't know whether maybe that's what they're trying to say. And I mean, Midge can do everything, not just behind the mic. She's kind of a superhero, real, really. So I, I don't think you should be concerned that you can't do eight <laughs> minutes of, uh, <laughs> you know, the way she can. But I think that's true. I think that jurors probably prefer, and I think there's studies on this, uh, lawyers who aren't reading from a script, but that's not 
that there wasn't a script that was prepared. It was just one that is memorized. And I think there's tricks that you can do to make it seem like you just came up with something, even though you knew you know, before you walked in uh, that day, you were going to tell that joke. So, but I, I just think that that's something that is, is a little bit of a, of a similarity. You know, going back to Midge, uh, I think one of the things that she does early in the, in, I guess it's probably the first episode, but back when Joel was the one who was doing the, the stand up and she's there and she's looking at everybody in the audience and she's taking copious notes and she's keeping track of on Tuesday what joke worked and Wednesday the same joke didn't work and why was that? How hard is that? How much of your crafting what you're doing as a comic is doing that and how is it different than what you did when you were, say, doing a pellet? work. Mm -hmm. I think now as a comic, and mainly because you have the opportunity to do this, the, the preparation is even more in terms of the verbal component of it. I'm not saying that I didn't know my cases when I was doing the limited appellate work I did earlier in my career. You know your cases, you know the facts, there's a certain amount that you can say out loud. I remember when I was once preparing for a Fifth Circuit argument, Really, the practice consisted of going in a conference room with two, I was an associate at the time, with two partners. And we probably ran through it about three times. And they're like, okay, you're ready. And maybe that was the style of the law firm I was in. But maybe what some people listening to your podcast may not realize is that by the time you're seeing a comic in a show, you know, like you have paid money to see that comic. Hopefully that person has told those jokes possibly hundreds of times before, because during the week, especially in, in great towns like Austin and Dallas, you can go to what's called open mics where you may get three or four minutes of stage time. And sometimes there are some civilians in there who aren't comics, but it's a lot of comics too. And so you run through your jokes and you're, you're listening for timing. You're listening where your jokes hit and, and where they don't. And many comics record their sets, even at those open mics, on their phones. And I, and I do this about 70% of the time. And then you go back and you listen. And like really where were the laughs and... Sometimes, and maybe this is true as, as you're developing your mediation practice and you're kind of thinking about the things you say to, you know, the, the respective parties at the beginning of mediations is sometimes you just have to let it go. You have to let a line go or a punchline that's just not working, you know, and, and that's hard because it's your baby, but you have to just send it away because you're like, it's, it's funny to me, but it's not funny to anybody else. Well, yeah, I went to an Austin Mediators Association uh, meeting that the theme was on humor in mediation. And so I was thinking I'd go there and I'd pick up some good material mm -hmm, that, you know, people right. had used to break the ice. Well, actually, it was looking at it from a much more negative, you know, standpoint mm. of, of all the ways that maybe you can foul up um, negotiations or mediations by you know, not knowing where that line is that we've been talking mm -hmm. about. And it did really make me, you know, think a lot about what I do. And so what I've kind of done in response to that is, like you said, up, up front, and you, we all have our spiels. So as a mediator, I have an opening spiel. I talk about uh, the importance of, you know, confidentiality. Um, you know, I acknowledge that it's very difficult. We've just met, but my effort throughout this afternoon is to work hard for you to demonstrate for you that I have, you know, looked at the materials that you've provided, that I understand um you know, the, the pros and cons of your arguments, of your adversaries' arguments, and I'm working hard to try to get the, the, the parties uh, to settle. One of the things that I tell people is that you're here with your lawyer. Uh, the other side has a lawyer. Um, my client in a mediation is the yet-to-be-formulated settlement. That's, that's, that's my client. And what I'm trying to do is uh, if I push you it's not because I have any authority to make you do anything that you can't do. Um, I'm just trying to probe into what you value and whether there's a way that we can get this done. And if we can get it done for my client, at my client, that, that uh, you know, putative agreement, you know, that's my goal. And I talk about being neutral. And neutrality for a mediator is really 
perception from the other side. That's all they know. Uh, and what I tell people is, look, it doesn't matter. I did a lot of complex uh, commercial litigation, and so it was big money. So the question is, oh, is the defendant willing to pay X? And as a mediator, it doesn't matter what number I would value the case at. Uh, I'm not trying to put... You know, my, it's not my checkbook. So it doesn't matter whether I think, you know, the defendant might be willing to, in my mind, overpay. If they are, or the plaintiff is willing to take less than what I, you know, would have, that's fine. Now, in some family matters, I've been trained, you know, in family law. There's a little caveat to that. As a mediator, I'm not going to be party to an agreement that's based on disparate power, you know, dynamics where perhaps the, the the woman is just caving because she fears you know certain reprisals that's not something that you know but in a in a commercial litigation with a corporate you know a fortune 100 company wants to pay a million or two less than what i would you know that's fine they've got their counsel there so i tell people look i'm neutral but what neutral means is that I'm going to use the same process with both sides and when it comes to humor one thing that you know, I'm now a little more sensitive to is if you tell a joke and only the lawyers laugh and you're looking around and the non-lawyers aren't laughing, you should try to explain it so that it's not something that is alienating the parties because they're the ones who ultimately have to agree to the settlement. And, and so I don't think I've been, I had been doing that, but now at least I'm more cognizant not to do that. Another thing that I say is, look, I don't know what anybody may find funny. So if you see me in the hall and maybe I'm walking out of uh, the other side and we're laughing a little bit, it's not because I'm telling them something that I'm hiding from you. It just probably is for whatever reason they think my material might be funnier than you do. And, uh, you know, and, and that's okay. Just like I tell them that you're trying to tell me to go into the other room and make a legal argument to get them to change their position. And sometimes I can effectively do that and move us towards reaching my client, the uh, agreed agreement. And sometimes I, I'm not going to be able to, but it's the same thing uh, with humor. But so I, I agree that that spiel, you know, that you do at the beginning has to be contextual. And sometimes, you know, some days it's going to work a little bit more, you know, than others. Right. Now, I remember when you first reached out to me and said, you know, we can talk about comedy and mediation. And at first, I was sort of not taken aback, but I was just like, is there a role of comedy in mediation? I mean, I've been doing mediations more as the representative of a party. Like, I've never mediated a case as, as you are so bravely doing these days. I'm, I'm just, you know, the party in the other room. And since I deal with a lot of employment disputes, a lot of times in mediation is where the former employee usually is sort of reliving one of the worst days of their lives or the worst periods of their lives. And sometimes humor is really not appropriate. And you don't want to give the impression you're not taking it seriously. But one of the things where I think humor can work in mediation is honestly behind the closed door, because it's tension. It's, you know, it's a long day. And if people didn't realize, no, you're going to be here all day, you know, after a while, they get tired and, and you need some stimulation and you need some tension relief just to keep the parties engaged, I think. No, I agree with that. That and snacks. Although I, I can say for the record that I am not one of the mediators that will intentionally withhold the snacks until oh. until you get to a point. No, that was a secret of the profession. Oh, really? Oh. You, you haven't been in a mediation in which you've been, you know, starved out for a little bit and the snacks maybe show up later in the no. afternoon? <laughs> no, okay. I, maybe I've been played this whole time. Jeez. Oh, Okay. Yeah, no, I, I, I would put snacks and, and humor in the same, you know, uh, vein. But I, I agree with you that actually most of my attempts to use humor are to try to ratchet down some of the tension. And that's usually best done when you're in caucus, when you're alone with one side, in part because, like we said, it's, it's hard to come up with something so universal that it it rate, it lowers the tension for everybody at the same time. But uh, I can't believe you, you've never been in a mediation in which you, you weren't suspecting that you were being starved out intentionally. I'm one of those people that's like, I le I'll leave my conference room and I'll just like wander around the mediator's office till I find where the cokes were kept and stuff like that. So maybe, maybe I just haven't been paying enough attention. But that's good. Now I'm going to look out for that. No, and I, I think... 
Your point, too, about some of the employment cases where I would say the same thing if you have like a medical malpractice and you're, you're in the room with a family that may have lost somebody or, or they have a severely injured person. I mean, clearly when I'm talking about, you know, trying to decrease the tension, in no way, obviously, are you making you know, light of the situation that you're in. And so upfront as a mediator, again, to get that credibility, you have to make it abundantly clear that you're empathetic towards all people. And that includes, and sometimes a plaintiff might not fully appreciate empathy towards the defendant. I mean, they, they look at the defendant as, you know, person who in their mind did something wrong. And, you know, at the end of the day, we can get to a resolution, but doesn't mean we have to demonize the other side. Although you have to try to be careful of not being judgmental, but also being open to reading why a case has yet to, you know, sometimes it could just be, look, these people really aren't that far off on a legal perspective. They just don't like each other, you know, and that's where sometimes I think some of these techniques of decreasing the tension, you know, if you can get people to lower their armor a little bit, they might realize we're not that far apart and, and maybe we could get this uh, resolved. But in, so, in some other cases, you know, some cases are not maybe meant to settle, even even though we know the statistics. At the end of the day, most of them do. I, I want to touch back on one last point, I guess in the non-mediation context a, a little bit, because you know we've got you here. We talked a little bit about Jerry Seinfeld and in terms of society and, you know, I think we're policing ourselves a little bit more. We go back to uh, you know our favorite show, and so Lenny Bruce has a, a role in the show. Now, my wife's a little bit younger than I am, and so she didn't know who Lenny Bruce was. So I first pointed out, well, she certainly knew that he was mentioned several times in the R.E.M. song. So, so, so then, uh, right, right. So, so she saw, okay, so you know who is that? But I think it's so interesting that there was a time in the '60s in which, just for the content of your stand-up, the police could come in and and actually throw Mm -hmm. you in jail. But the interesting thing to me is, I think clearly the 70s and 80s was a rebellion against that. Society changed, even though we consider, I mean, right now, as Seinfeld laments about PC, you know, impacting comedy, I haven't heard of anybody being jailed for the content of their show. So it shows you how society evolves in it. And I think the pendulum has swung to, in the absence of government policing comedy, you have this intent of the audience itself and and comedians. And it makes you have to draw a line. Like, is, you know, is it appropriate to to make a joke about September 11th? You know? Right. That's a great example. And then the follow-up question to that is, if you think it is, would it have been appropriate on September 12th? Like, is, is there a timing? Is there a content? And that and that's where I think when we talked about everything being contextual, it, you have to draw those those lines. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say, as a lawyer, if it's in a gray area, you don't go there. As a mediator, if it's a gray area, you don't go there. But as a comedian... I mean, there are, I think you said it might not be your, you know, thing, but there are comedians who look for those gray areas so that they oh, can yeah. exploit them. Yeah. I mean, like the word edgy is is usually a compliment in comedy, whereas in the law, it's likely not. You know, people who, oh, I'm pushing the envelope. But I do think, and again, just my opinion, expressly my own, is that some comedians make jokes and use the fact that for some reason they're on a stage with a microphone as a defense to say things, you know, which, which are utterly inappropriate in any, almost any venue. (laughs) And, and I'm not particularly thin skinned, but I mean, and, but there have been times where I've just put my head and my hand when another comic's been on stage, because I'm just like, please transport me somewhere else because I don't want I don't want to listen to this. It is it is so racist or a lot of times sexist. And, you know, it, to me, it's interesting how comedy polices itself because I think, again, my own opinion that racism is tolerated a lot less than sexism. Sexism is 
in some mind, apparently just hilarious to some people. And, you know, as a woman in comedy, and that makes me a minority in comedy being a woman, you know, it, it's something, you know, I have to be mindful of. And, you know, there's, I've talked with other female comics about sometimes there's even a sense of personal danger in the world of comedy, because there is that sort of, hey, if you've got a microphone on stage, as long as you're funny, you can say anything. And, you know, granted, to your point, we don't have the police that come on stage and go, you know, threatening that woman that way is probably a crime. I mean, nobody does that, but that's what sometimes happens. Well, you know, in, in reading up, um, you know, there's actually people who devote research, both legally and psychology, about trying to define comedy. What is it? And, you know, I think it's that that would be, a, in my mind, a very frustrating pursuit because I don't know that it can get distilled into a, a, a definition. But there were there's a couple schools of thought, and I think it impacts a little bit a little bit about what you're talking about in terms of how it's regulated, both frankly legally and just from the society standpoint. I, one school of thought goes all the way back to Thomas Hobbes, who's not the most positive guy in the world. Life is kind of a struggle, but his thought of comedy was it really was just a vehicle to demonstrate your superiority. And I, I think when you look at sexist jokes and you look at, I think, uh, some of the employment cases that you've probably had where the defense is, oh, I was just joking. And, you know, context matters. And if you're joking, the subordinate and you're a male boss and it's a female who's working for you, you know, there's different rules that you can't just say, oh, I thought that was, you know, funny. And the, and the law tends to look at that type of humor, superiority in certain contexts with more scrutiny than other contexts. So the other theory, and you and I talked about this, this is what you and I both just think, I guess, is the closest to what comedy is, the incongruity theory, where, you know, you lead your audience into one direction and then kind of pull a fast one, and you're walking them down a path and then taking them somewhere where they didn't expect it. It's ironic or it's just not what, what, what they suspected. But you can do that by pointing out that everybody has inherent biases. I don't know whether some sometimes you can pull somebody down the road where the assumption is, oh, that would be the man, you know, mm -hmm. and then, oh, but if, if it's mm -hmm. a woman, then it causes people to think a little bit more than if, if the joke was reversed. I don't, I don't know whether that's part of what you do uh, or not. I know that we talked in general, that's how you view your humor. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, I think that you're exactly right. The principle of incongruity is one that plays out in, in all kinds of comics work. And, you know, you can be a blue comic and it work, you can be a clean comic and it work, but the element of surprise is something that is human nature, I think makes us laugh. And the misdirection where, you know, a, a lot of a joke is a setup and a misdirection, a setup and a misdirection. And sometimes the crowd laughs because they see it coming. <laughs> and it's still funny, even though they see it coming, because they're like, Haha, I got that. Um, I knew that. I knew y'all were going to say that. And then there's other, they're totally not expecting it. Um, you know, a, a lot of my humor, um, I always say the humor is not about my husband, but it, it's about our relationship and sort of the oddities about it. And uh, I always say Brian is never the punchline. I'm not here to make fun of my husband. I'm, mostly I am the punchline. But there's so many incongruities between a man and a woman, for instance, like you said, that make for just great joke material. I, I do a joke sometimes about New Year's resolutions and that my husband had three of them. And one was to um, run a half marathon by July. Number two was to lose a bunch of weight. And number three was to take a second mortgage out on our home so he could start day trading in Bitcoin. And, you know, you're, you're, you know, you, I think if I'm reading your face right, are like, oh my gosh, would he really do that? And then I go, yeah, I told him the hell you are going to lose a bunch of weight, you know? And, and like, that's what, because everyone thinks I'm going to jump on, you're not second mortgaging our home when my real problem just sort of as a woman is don't, don't you be losing weight, <laughs> you know, because I can't, I can't handle that, you know? And so it's, it's that misdirect and, and the, I mean, I'm not saying that's the greatest joke ever written, but I'm just saying it, it, it falls into a very uh, standard sort of 
you know, comedy often comes in threes. So you set it up, you do, you know, two sort of normal sets up, you do a misdirect and then you hit them with the punchline. So. All right. Well, if comedy comes in threes, then so there's the third uh, type of comedy. Yes. Uh, it, it's more what scholars call the release theory. And to me, this can be good and bad. On the bad side, not surprisingly, that some of this goes back to Freud and the necessity to release some sexual tension. And that's why comedy a lot of time goes to places that are in our subconscious and allows people to release certain you know, tension and anxiety. And so that can get a comic into trouble because once you get into that area, that's been historically some of the areas where that's why mm-hmm. the police were dragging, you know, Mr. Bruce to jail. But it also, I think on the positive side, goes back to what I was saying in terms of there's plenty of studies that talk about, you know, people who laugh, think more clearly, uh, you know, are more optimistic. And that goes back to my setting about, you know, if you can release some of Mm -hmm. the tension that's involved in a dispute, whether it be a business dispute, even a divorce, you know, type of situation, uh, then I think you can get the parties, you know, back to the table. But between the superiority, release theory and incongruity, I, I feel the law is much more forgiving to incongruity. I think in workplace situations and other contexts, humor that's meant to be on the superiority or to be on the sexual side is generally policed a little bit more strictly, uh, you know, than, than, than something, uh, you know, I don't think there's strictly the legal rule of, you know, like there is uh, in kind of a libel case, you know, the truth is a, you know, defense. I mean, in some ways, if it really was funny, then it's hard to be actionable, even in any context. But, you know, you run the risk, of course, mm-hmm. if it's not funny. And in law, the consequences are so much greater to me. And, you know, if, if you crack a joke in a courtroom and it bombs, you know, the, the, the jury potentially or the judge, if it's a bench trial, or whomever your, your fact finder is, is going to look poorly on you. And that translates to poorly for your client. The stakes are higher in law, you know, and so I think lawyers do need to be careful about using comedy. And I think mediators too, like I would think not to be overly dramatic, Steve, but I would think, you know, a poorly timed joke or a misplaced joke, you could lose your credibility as a mediator in a second. Do you, th- do you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, and that goes to, you can't get paralyzed about being afraid of it, but it, but it is the truth. And that, that's true in a lot of things and the way, you know, mediation is a, almost an organic dynamic. And one side, you know, there's moves that you can make in mediation at 2.30 that might be considered insulting that if made at 4.30 would have been okay. And and trying to help the parties understand what the mindset is in the other room without having them think that you're a shill for the other, you know, side, you know, is, is problematic. But you, but if you make a misstep in that, just like if you tell mm-hmm. an off, you know, Joe, mm-hmm. it can derail, you know, the whole, you know, thing. I think a good mediator is someone that maybe has a little more leeway than a bad mediator in the sense that either they're a little bit more skillful in realizing immediately that this is something I need to address because you have a window of, tr- mm-hmm. you can never take something back completely, but you have a window of at least a t- of, of making it clear. I'm start. I know I need to work to restore my credibility with you and I'm doing it, you know, this second. Whereas if you're oblivious to that, then you're yeah. unlikely to be able to, you know, assist the parties uh, to getting anything done. Do you have any examples from your legal career in which you, used humor successfully, unsuccessfully, or uh, as we kind of talked a little bit, you said you kind of have this Batman persona where, you know, you're uh, Bruce Wayne by day and, uh, you know, Batman that night. Superhero in this scenario. That's great. No, it's, you know, it's hard for me to think of it because just by way of background, I was a litigator for about six years before going in-house um, with the healthcare company I work at now. And so those were two very different skill sets. And I can't think of a time 
I was second chairing trials or taking depositions or things like that, where, where I was sort of intentionally funny on purpose to achieve an end. I, I really, I definitely, as you say, sort of had a Batman personality, um, especially as, as a woman in the legal field, you want to be taken seriously. And so, especially when you're a young associate, you don't want to be that, that funny girl who sometimes, who, I mean, who somehow got a JD next to her name. That's not who you want to be. So, I mean, I think being in-house and having built relationships with clients, with internal clients that some are as, you know, 15 and 18 years, you become almost friends, you know, and some of you, you truly are friends. And so when you reach that, you, you can use humor, you know, like if I'm, I'm talking with someone who's a decision maker and has the authority to settle a case, for instance, you can use humor. And, and some of these are sort of hack jokes, but they sort of work. As I'm like, you know, Mr. or Mrs. CEO, I know you don't even want to be talking to me, you know, and, and I know, you know, it's like, how do I say this? It's like, I think we need to resolve this case, you know, because I know you don't want to spend time with me and things like that. It's like, I'm just trying to like lighten it up. I mean, none of us are going to make the decision based on whether the CEO of the, of the hospital wants to see Karen any longer. That's, that's not what it is, but it's just, you know, just kind of try to loosen it up and, you know, use whatever devices you have to get someone to go, okay, you're right. I, I, you know, I don't want to spend any more time on this particular piece of litigation. And so you settle it, but I really do try to keep it separate. I'm sort of, I dread the day when, you know, we're, we're in a meeting and you know, someone's running a few minutes late and they're like, Hey, Karen, we got three minutes. Hit us with some jokes. I mean, that's only happened once. And I was like, no, you know, I mean, but you don't want to be that, but I'm like, you know, I'm not, I'm not a dancing, you know, circus animal either. So, well, no, you're not. (laughs) I think I told you that I think they're going to do a trailer for uh, the three episodes that I've done. And in a completely unrelated concept, uh, Judge Hull told me that he wasn't a pigeon in episode one. So now, so now we, we, now we have, you know, you're not a circus animal. He's not a pigeon. So we at least have that, uh, you know, established. Well, I don't mean to imply that, you know, my goal throughout my litigation career was, you know, to, to be a, a stand up. But, you know, in kind of introspection and looking back at it, I do think that I've probably risked injecting humor a little bit more. I think there's a rush from it just in the same way that there must be when you pick up the mic just to do stand-up. Actually, that goes to one thing. Who's the funniest person in the courtroom? Always the judge. Absolutely. Hysterical. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's funny, and they set the tone too, uh, you know, and everything uh, as far as that goes. Well, look, I have one last thing that I need to cover with you. This is a game that I play with everybody on the podcast. And so we're going to do it based on your, your stand-up. We were talking about our vintage, and I think we are of about the same age. So I think you do remember, let's make a deal with Monty Hall. Or at least know the, the, the show? Know roughly the concept. Okay, so we're going to play a game in which there's three doors. Behind two doors are the worst audiences you've ever had for stand-up. They're not going to laugh at anything. And behind the other door... I mean, it's as if it could be, you know, Brian, your, your best friends. and I can do no wrong. You can do no wrong. And of course, it's you're on The Tonight Show. So that, that's the door that you want. Now, the rules of the game are that you're going to pick a door. And I will then reveal from one of the two remaining doors, one of the bad audiences. And then I'm going to ask whether you want to switch. That's the rules of the game. Do you understand the rules of the game? So I... I say I want a particular door, and then you choose another door. That I show you had one of the two bad okay. outcomes. Well, let's try it, Steve. All right. <laughs> so you have door number one, door number two, or door number three. Steve, I'm going to take door number three. All right. You took door number three, and I'm going to show you behind door number one was the world's nastiest, meanest, terrible audience. So... There's two remaining doors now. Door number three, which you selected. Door number two, which you did not. Because I am a magnanimous podcast uh, host, I am giving you the opportunity of a lifetime. Do you want to switch to door number two? I do not. No, you do not. Okay. All right. So you're sticking with door number three. Absolutely. All right. And I am revealing for you that door number three was the other nasty Mm. 
audience. So I, I, I'm, I'm sorry that uh, your Tonight Show debut went, you know, terribly wrong. They, they, they booed you. It was, it was, it was know, going terrible. back to the retirement home in, in Tyler, Texas. There you okay. go. All right. God. Now there's actually a point to all of this. And, and, and so the point to it is, and I'm actually going to have on a future podcast, a man who wrote a book on the Monty Hall problem. The point is that mathematically under the rules of the game that I told you, you weren't guaranteed to lose, but mathematically those who switch win twice as much as those who don't. I just like the number three because uh, comedy comes in three, Steve. Uh, so, so maybe I'm not the most reliable person. No, to no, do that's this. Oh, no, no, no. Math didn't stick with the equation. I'm just like I'm a comedian. I'm going to stick with. Three. All right, no, that's fine. Well, and that actually, so the point though that I was making is that's a very psychological standpoint, very rigid, and, and, right. and, and, and I think not necessarily like rigid, but I think it would hurt you more and most people more that if you I originally picked the right one. And then I switched off that you can live with yourself. Right. Of, I picked the wrong door, right. you know, right. right. But if right. I switch, then right. you have right. second guessing. Right. So that's why people, even though they don't see an advantage to staying, they do. And I think that's also important for the psychology of settlement is because what I found, especially when you have corporate clients, people's assessment of cases sometimes go back to day one when they got the case. And you have to make them realize that they have to move off of that. So that's really the only point of that. I can see you'd rather go back to talking about Lenny Bruce and Mrs. Maisel than numbers. But I'm going to be doing a a podcast that talks a little bit more about probability and how it impacts uh, settlement valuation. So I've used you as a guinea pig in terms of getting data for that. So I I very much appreciate that. I appreciate that. I appreciate all of uh, your time here today. I had fun. I hope uh, you did and uh any any last uh words of wisdom for us it was a real pleasure i wish you every success in your mediation business and uh if you you know develop more data maybe not on game theory but on um using comedy in law or mediation you know love to hear from you again Well, absolutely. I wish you all the best as well. And uh, don't be surprised if you see me and my wife in the audience uh, one day. I'd love it. Look forward to it. All right. Well, so for today, we're closing the door. We'll keep it uh, uh, open a little crack uh, for for next time. But until then, this is Steve Showwolf. Thank you very much. This closes the door on Opening Doors to Resolution, a mediation podcast. Please join us next time where Steve will discuss with a new guest topics related to mediation, negotiation, and resolution. Thank you for listening.